Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. So our previous car was a Citroen C3. Um, greatly loved. Uh, we had it for, I think it was about 10 or more years. It did over 100,000 miles. Um, one of our friends warned us about sort of a, a third of the way into a lifetime um, the, the thing about Citroëns is, is this, they are beautiful pieces of artistry, but you have to be ready that only about two-thirds of your car will work at any one time. <laughs> Absolutely true, um, mainly the electric. Sarah, um, I'm not sure why we stayed with them, because I think the previous car was a, uh, another Citroën, a Citroën Saxo, and this had this wonderful ability to do things like just suddenly start locking the doors of its own accord, or just cut out completely when you were going around the roundabout. Um, essentially, we're, we're talking about, um, there's some things about satanic um, possession and demons coming up later on. If your car does that, then it is either going to be a demon or it is going to be a citron. And it's, uh, which, one, which one is it? So we've had our car for 10 years and we've done that thing that you do, you know, when you get up to the sort of seventh, eighth year when it goes in for service and every time it comes back and they say, we need you to spend about seven, eight, eight hundred pound on the car. And you keep getting conned back into that thinking, well, now we've spent that amount of money on it, we've got to keep the car for another year. So you, you gradually build up and you've eventually paid the same as you would have for a new car. We get to the 10th year and we go up to visit my parents in, in Bradford. Friday, Friday evening, hit the M6 and get stuck in traffic. And then about halfway up the motorway, um, messages come on the car. Um, um, sorry, on the single lot, not again, the car speaking to us <laughs> rather like that. So your engine is overheating, you need to, you need to stop immediately or terrible things will happen. Uh, so we do this several times and what eventually happens is that we, we find ourselves on the M62 crawling over the, sort of the highest point of the motorway at some dangerously slow mileage, about 30 miles an hour, till we arrive in Bradford outside my mum and dad's house and the car makes a sound literally like, you know, you know if you get a mouse or something dying, sort of that kind of sound of eee. <laughs> And you know, we expected the doors to fall off as we, we get out. Um, next morning, looking under the body of my dad, as dads are great at looking under, making touching noises, and, and he says, yeah, this one's beyond recovery. This is beyond repair. You have to get a new car now. And, and he was right. We, we waved the, the car off. It got sort of took on a um, flatbed um, truck off to car graveyard. Later that day, never to be seen again. Very sad moment. Sarah's well enough as I'm talking about the deeply emotional uh, for us. And uh, no one was prepared to pay us anything for it. I think they wanted to charge us to take it. But there was the car completely beyond recovery. And we talk about cars and equipment and things, we talk about them reaching that stage where they're beyond repair, don't we? But I, I wonder if you've ever felt like that describes you, or if someone said to you, this is, this is me, I'm beyond repair, I'm beyond recovery, that there is 
nothing that anybody could do to put my life together again because of uh, what I've done myself, the things I've thought, the things I've said, the way I've been with people, the mistakes I've made, or sadly even because of the things that others have done to me that leave me feeling completely damaged beyond repair. That how do we respond to someone who says that I believe I'm beyond recovery? And there's a, a significant part of today's Bible reading that is all about that question, am I beyond repair? Am I beyond recovery? Because later in the passage, uh, Jesus uses this phrase, again it might be something you found yourself saying, asking about or heard others asking, Jesus talks about something called the unforgivable sin. I wonder, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to show hands this morning, but I wonder if you've ever thought, have I, have I committed that sin? The sin that is completely unforgivable, that puts me in a situation where God can't put things right, where God can't forgive me. How would you answer that question if someone was to say to you, have I committed that sin? Am I beyond God's forgiveness, beyond restoration, beyond reconciliation, beyond recovery? How do we answer that? Well, here, in fact, we can go back a little bit earlier, back to the end of Mark chapter 2. And through to the end of Mark chapter 3, the big picture is, is this, that Jesus is the true Lord and King, that he is the Saviour, that he is the one who claims to be able to rescue and recover. And Jesus has turned up and he said, I'm here and my kingdom has arrived with me. I'm bringing all of the power and all of the strength and all of the goodness of my kingdom and change is coming. And as we've seen through Mark already, this brings a lot of excitement. Lots of people are so excited that the king is here, that good things are happening. But we've also started to see that Jesus meets with resistance. So last week, Doreen was uh, talking about this man who uh, gets let down through a, a hole in a roof into this patch room where lots of people come to see Jesus. And Jesus forgives the man. That's exciting, isn't it? That Jesus brings forgiveness and brings healing. But not everybody was excited and awestruck about it. There were people there described as scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, and they are disgusted, they are horrified, they're touching away. How dare Jesus claim this ability, this authority to forgive? And so on the one hand, you've got Jesus being acclaimed, welcomed, the excitement. But on the other hand, you've got this hostility to him. And we're going to see in this chapter how that shapes up. And it's going to help us answer that question. Am I beyond repair? Am I beyond recovery? But to answer that, we see two things here. But two things that we need to know. The first one is this, that Jesus is the Lord of space and time. And uh, if you want to have a look with me in your Bibles, have a look back at the end of chapter 2, verse 23 to, to, to 26, and then on into verse 6 of chapter 3. We'll see how these two bits 
happening together. In the last passage, right at the end of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples are being going on a, a walk and they go through this field and the disciples are picking uh, the grain uh, and they're, they're making a sort of on-the-move picnic as they go along, rubbing it, making the grain and then eating it. And some of these religious leaders are around as well and they do this sort of little calculation in their head that says, Hmm, this is a bit more than taking your packed lunch because what they've started to do is uh, they have started to harvest a really bizarre bit of sort of loyalness, isn't it? So they say, Jesus' disciples are working and this is the Sabbath day. This is the day when God's law tells us to rest. And they say to Jesus, you're going you're to tell them off. You're going to stop them from doing this terrible thing. Uh, and Jesus says, well, actually, there's this king in the Old Testament, King David, and he, because he was the king, was able even to take the bread from the temple to eat it. Somebody more important than King David is here. It's me. And Jesus says two important things at the end of that chapter. He says, first of all, you need to know this. Yes, there's this law. Um, we talked about it last week. The law that says that you're meant to rest. this Sabbath day. But that was made for you, not to be a burden to you. This was made as a good thing for you. And the second thing is this. I'm in charge of the law. I'm in charge of the Sabbath day. Jesus says, I am the king. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm the Lord of space and time right down to the days of the week. Right down to this morning, today, Jesus says, I'm in charge of what happens today. I'm in charge of what happens this morning. And so the big question is going to be, if Jesus is in charge of it, what are we meant to do with it? And at the start of chapter 3, Jesus starts to show us what he wants to do with this day, with this time that belongs to him. Uh, there's a, a man who turns up in the synagogue. The synagogue was where uh, the Jews would get together to be taught God's word, the equivalent of coming to church. And uh, Jesus is there, and all the people are into worship, and there's singing and Bible teaching from the, the law going on. And there's this man, and he's got a, a, a hand withered or defined. He's not able to use And he sat there. And Jesus knows that he's there. So he says, I want you to come out and stand here, right in the middle, where everyone can see you. Notice that Jesus does something public here. He brings this person out where everybody can see what he's about to do. Have you ever wondered about why Jesus does I think that the reason Jesus does that, you see that all the way through, Mark, that, that the, um, the, the forgiving of that man last week was very public, right in front of everyone. You see, when we've got things going on in our lives, things that we might be embarrassed about, things that we might feel ashamed about, things that we wish others didn't know about, our desire is that we, we want them dealt with kind of somewhere else where we're not the centre of attention because of that feeling of shame. But whether it's uh, something that we feel is disfiguring physically, or whether it's something about us that is uh, hidden in our lives, something emotional, something spiritual, 
our tendency is to think, I want to keep that out of sight. And perhaps that's you this morning, but there is something there, and you're thinking, if everyone else in this room knew what I'd said, what I'd done, what I've been thinking about, what I'm thinking about right now, or if everyone in this room knew what others had said about me or done to me, they wouldn't want to know me. They'd be ashamed of me. And we tend to do something further with that. What we do is we think this is how others will view us. But then we go on from there and we assume that God will be the same. That not only will other people not want to know me, not want anything to do with me, could have possibly love me, that because of this thing I'm beyond recovery, beyond repair, and that's how God will look at me as well. And Jesus isn't going to allow that to happen with this, this man. Jesus brings him home to the centre to say this is not a place for shame, but grace drives out shame. And so Jesus brings this man where everyone can see and says, stretch out your arm. And he's able to, he's healed publicly so that everyone can see that God is at work, that this man is not beyond recovery, not beyond repair, that there is a God who loves him, a God who is able to heal and to forgive. Jesus is the Lord of space and time, and so Jesus decides what happens with his time, and he uses that time for good. And there in the synagogue are some of his opponents. And Jesus has done this again. It's a Sabbath day. It's the day when you're meant to stop working, and their minds start computing and calculating, and they think, hmm, uh, healing someone. Well, that's a doctor's job, isn't it? That's for GPs and surgeons, so this is, so this is, this is like full-on surgery. Sounds like he's working, doesn't he? And, um, you know, back in that day, clearly they didn't have the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week uh, 7 NHS um, kind, of, kind of room. He's working, he's doing stuff on the Sabbath. Jesus knows their thoughts and he says, hold on a second. How should we be using this day? What's the right thing to do? Is it to do good? Is it to bring health, to bring life, to bring healing? Or is it to do evil? And whilst they don't answer him in the room, they answer him by what they do next. I don't know if you spotted it, but what the Bible says, what Mark tells us is that they went away and began to plot uh, with other people. So uh, with a bunch of people called the Herodians, these were people that um, supported a guy called King Herod, um, a, a, a descendant, a successor of the, the Herod who'd tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. Uh, so he's one of the political leaders. He's a person put in place by the Romans to keep people under control. So in effect, what they do is they plot, the religious people plot with the political people there's a history of that. It keeps going, doesn't it? And where Jesus has used the Sabbath to bring healing, to bring life, they use it 
to plot death and destruction, to plan murder. These are people whose hearts are so hard and twisted that they've got everything upside down and back to front. That they see things that are good and they call them evil. And they see things that are evil and they call them good. And that starts to get us into this question of what this unforgivable sin is that might put you beyond recovery. So first of all, we've seen that Jesus is the Lord of space and time. Here's the second thing I want you to spot in the passage. Jesus is the strong deliverer who is mighty to save. Cast your eyes down to verse 22 to 30. But you see, after Jesus has been healing this man in the synagogue, um, he goes out and he's still getting lots of attention. We see Jesus has a, this great challenge of the crowds crashing in to, to see him, that he's constantly having to be aware that there's people getting close because they want to be healed. And Jesus is being recognised. You see that he's being recognised, not just by people, but um, the Bible tells us that even demons, even evil spirits are recognising him and saying, he's the Holy One, the King has come. They're frightened and they have to respond. Jesus is able to cast out demons. Uh, Jesus is continuing to show that he is the true king. Uh, another way he does that, by the way, is he, he gets 12 people together, sometimes called the 12 disciples or the, the apostles. Effectively, he's appointing ambassadors or his cabinet, his government for his new kingdom. 12 people uh, reflecting how in the Old Testament there have been 12 tribes in God's kingdom, the people of Israel. So all of that is happening, and there's all of this commotion around Jesus. Then you'll notice in verse 20 that his family start to get worried. His, um, his uh, mother and his brothers, and uh, they think Jesus has lost Fascinating, isn't it? Even Mary, after everything she's seen, she starts to have her doubts. That maybe his brothers have persuaded her to come along with them. That maybe her expectation about how all of the promises through the angel Gabriel were going to be fulfilled, maybe she expected it to turn out differently. But they get worried and they come basically to take Jesus home so they can look after him because they think he's out of his mind. C.S. Lewis uh, said that you have got three options uh, with Jesus. That either he is mad, he's insane, or that he's bad, or that he is truly who he claims to be, that he is truly God. That Jesus' family decide that he must be mad. That the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are convinced that he is bad. And so in this section, they start to come up with their hypothesis about how Jesus is able to do all of his miracles. And they've decided he's bad, so it can't be God. So they say, well, it's Satan, isn't it? Jesus must be possessed by a demon himself. In fact, to have the power that he does and to be able to get other demons uh, to do what he says... He must be possessed by Satan himself. Uh, some of your Bible versions will refer to this title, Beelzebub. It's a, a kind of a corruption of the Old Testament god Baal, 
and uh, the uh, the Jews used that to describe Satan, the lord of the, the demons. He said, Jesus must be acting with Satan's power. And Jesus' response to them is very, very serious theology, very, very technical answer. Jesus' response is, well, you're, you must be the ones that are nuts, then, mustn't you? How on earth could you come to that conclusion? It's pretty daft, isn't it? The idea that Satan would have all of this power and then he'd use it basically to start a fight with his own demons. That's absolutely daft. It would mean that Satan's empire, Satan's kingdom, is in a state of civil war that they're fighting amongst themselves. In which case, Satan isn't really that powerful after all, is he? But Jesus says, no, that, that's not what is happening here. Use your brains and think about it. Jesus says, no, something different has happened here. If Satan's, and Satan's army is basically in retreat, if they're having to do what I say, then something far greater than that has happened, that the strong king, the strong deliverer is here. And Satan's power is crumbling. Any fans of uh, the language in the wardrobe here? Yeah. Yeah. My mate natives as well. So you will know that in the story, there's the, the point uh, in the language in the wardrobe where there's these four children. They've turned up in this magical kingdom called Narnia. And Narnia is ruled by an evil witch, the white witch. And she's done something really vile and nasty. She has made it so that it's winter all year round, but never Christmas. So there's ice and snow, but no one gets to celebrate Christmas. And when the children arrive, something exciting happens. The first little clue that something um, has changed is this. Father Christmas turns up. The real, actual Father Christmas, not, not somebody dressed up in Morrison's with a, with a red coat on and that kind of thing. And then, after Christmas has happened, the snow and the ice start to fall. And the judge asks him, what is happening? And he's explained to them that there is a true king, a good king of Narnia, called Aslan. I should call him a guy, really, shall The big, mighty, ferocious lion. And the lion king has turned up. He's arrived. And so the white witch's power is crumbling. And Jesus is saying here in Mark's Gospel, that is what is happening that God himself in the person of Jesus has turned up. And so Satan's power is crumbling. Satan's ability to hold people, to control them, to damage them, to hurt them, it's crumbling away because God is at work. God is on the move. And so that is what was really happening. That's why the demons were fleeing. That's why people were being healed, because Jesus was present and mighty to save. 
but they were getting closer to the point when he would completely de defeat sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection. Just as we today see that evidence that Satan's power has crumbled, it's crumbling as God works in our midst today, as we see people's lives changed through the gospel. Now it's not that Jesus is doing Satan's work, it is that Satan's power is crumbled because the true king is present. And that's where Jesus takes us to that question about this unforgivable sin, because Jesus says, look, you need to understand this. God is mighty to save and he can forgive every sin. But he says there is a sin that doesn't get forgiven. The unforgivable sin. What is it? He says, well, he uses a phrase, he calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or to speak evil, to speak bad against the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, we can see it from the context here. Remember what I said earlier, that you have these people who are faced with the glory of God's greatness, with the beauty of Jesus' love and grace and mercy, and they refuse to see it. It's not just that they can't see it, they have in their hearts. It's not that they're a bit short-sighted. It's like they're sticking their hands in front of their eyes, fingers in their ears, and say, we don't want to see, we don't want to know. We've decided that Jesus is bad. That they have learned to call good evil and to call evil good so that they reject Jesus and in rejecting him they're also rejecting the Holy Spirit rejecting God's spirit of work that's why it's unforgivable not because God is limited that there's anything that God can't forgive but rather that they are choosing to reject and close themselves off to the very means that God gives for forgiveness that they're choosing to turn their backs on God himself, that they're saying, I don't even want God's forgiveness, I don't want God's love, I don't want God's goodness, I reject it completely, I would rather be in a place of judgment and punishment than to embrace God's grace. Just to say that if you find yourself asking that question, could I have committed the unforgivable sin? I would say that the clue is actually there that you haven't. Because what you are saying when you ask that question is, I don't want to be outside of God's love. What you're saying is that your heart, your conscience is tender and sensitive to God, that you are listening to him speaking to challenge you. So the, the reality is that if you are here and you're listening and engaging, that you are very, very unlikely to be committing that sin. But there is the warning there about what will we do with Jesus, what will we do with the Holy Spirit. There's that challenge, how will you respond to him? Are you able to see, are you willing to see his goodness and his 
love for you is love for me, a love that says that none of us are out of his reach, out of his care, out of his power to save. That love that is unstoppable, that love that took him from heaven and brought him here to die for us. That's what it means to say that you're not beyond recovery, not beyond repair, not beyond his reach, that Jesus went as far as death and through the other side for you and me.